if you have your Bibles, we will be, for the next couple weeks, we only have a few more weeks before uh, we're done uh, with this series, but for the next few weeks, we're going to continue uh, looking at uh, this guy named John who knew Jesus well, traveled around with him, loved him, was loved by Jesus. Uh, his letter he wrote to this church that he was probably an overseer, an elder of, and just assuring them that what they believed and what they received in Jesus was not in vain, <laughs> that it mattered. In a world that maybe all of the external evidence at least made them question whether or not they needed something else. John is assuring them they do not need anything else but Christ. He's assuring them that not only do they have eternal life because of what Jesus is, because of their faith in Christ, because of what Christ has done, but also they have a stable place to live from, a stable place to live out of, a reality and a truth that matters. So he's writing this letter to them to assure them of the salvation that they have of all that has been done for them. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 7 today. Uh, And this is one of the two great love passages in the Bible. Uh, The other one being uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Even if you didn't grow up in church, but had to go to a wedding, you heard it, right? Uh, You know, love is faithful, love is gentle, it's kind, does not hold grudges, a lot of stuff, right? That's the other great love passage. Uh, This one, though, uh, that one may be better known, uh, but this one is the the second one, and it is, man, it's... It's a lot. I just, I'm going to tell you it's a lot. I'm going to, we're going to read the rest of chapter four and then a little bit into chapter five. It all kind of goes together just to get a picture of what John is saying. And, and also, I, I want to avoid the danger of, of lifting this out of the text and just going like, John's talking, it just, it just struck John all of a sudden that he should found Hallmark and just send this like gushy love, love letter. And that's not what it is. Like it, it's in the context. John has just said, uh, hey, your hearts, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, will condemn you. Like your heart, when you go to God, will say like, you don't deserve this. And, and, it's, and, and John says, God's greater than your heart. Like the reality of who God is, is greater than your heart. Like when your heart and your thinking and your mind convince you that you don't deserve, that somehow your relationship with God is built on you deserving it, God is, God's reality is bigger than that. It's not built on what you deserve. It's built on who he is. So he's just said that. And then right after that, he says, hey, you know what? Not only is it your heart, but the world is going to try to trick you and convince you that it's not real, that it's not true. And it's gonna come against you. And he says this, he says, God is not only greater than your heart, he's greater than anything in the world. And then he launches into this love passage about who God is. Uh, It says this, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. And knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in him and, and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and, and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Uh, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, uh, does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Magnificent. Yeah? Like, it's just beautiful. On the 15th or 16th pass, the first few passes, you're like, it's just a jumble of love, right? I think he uses the word love or some version of the word love like 25 times. Like, it's insane. It's just like, love, blah, 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 love, 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 love. It's just kind of confusing, but when you start sitting with it, you start wondering, like, what is this? Because it's not this gushy, emotional thing. He's grounding this idea of love in truth. I'm going to tell a story that I've told before, uh, because uh, if you've heard it, um, don't stop me, because I want to hear it again. Uh, so it's a story I've told before. Uh, it was 20, over 20 years ago. Uh, I was with my bride-to-be uh, on Highway 280. Uh, we were, I was driving my 1993 white Toyota Corolla with Yakima roof racks, uh, and uh, we had just passed, you know, where uh, Superior Grill used to be. There's an Exxon, and I pulled into that Exxon to get gas. And uh, I'm filling up the tank. I put the thing in, and I come inside. I open, I crack the door, and I say, hey, I'm going to go inside, and I'm going to get a candy bar. Do you want anything? Because this Exxon was ahead of its time. It, 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 put, its, it put the Snickers where they're supposed to be, in the refrigerator, right? So, like, this is, I, so I'm like, hey, I'm going to go inside and get a candy bar. Do you want one? She said, no, I'm good, thank you. And I said, okay. So I go inside, and I come back out. I finish the gas, get in the car, merge back on the traffic on 280, and I take out my candy bar, and I begin to eat my Snickers. About halfway through my Snickers, my woman who had become my wife says, can I have a bite? And I reached in my pocket, and I pulled out a second Snickers, and I handed it to her. And she said, I didn't want a whole one. And I said, but I did. 
It was an icy day in the Honda Accord that day. Uh, let's tell this story for two reasons. One, because it amuses me. Uh, two, uh, because uh, people have strong reactions to this story for some reason. I've been telling it for 20 years, and I, I love telling it because there's, strong, there, there's two reactions. One reaction is, well, this is amazing. Second, second Snickers, that's brilliant. Like, yeah, that's a conflict avoidant. That's a brilliant. We should make him king. This is like, how could we not have thought about that? The other reaction is, I'd have cut him and never married him. Like, they're violently different reactions. And it's just, that it amuses me. And, and, and here's what I realize. I think, that the, I think the reason is, is because from two different perspectives, right? If you start from the place of, I want a whole Snickers, how will I get a whole Snickers? How do I avoid what I know is going to happen? You know what? I'll just get a second one. And it's not a big deal. You're just like, I'm trying to fix, I'm a problem solver. If you come from the perspective of, if your starting place is, we are in this together. And I love you and you love me. And one of the ways that you demonstrate that you love me is by sharing with me. Then I seem like the devil. Where you start from when you look at a situation determines how you understand it. Does that make sense? Where you start from matters in interpretation. Yeah? So here is my my premise for the whole sermon today. Here's my premise. This text points us to the starting place of understanding who God is, how to read scripture, how to understand life, and how to live in it. That, I, I believe that. I believe that this text gives us a starting place, and where you start is really, really, really important. Uh, love is one of the two most powerful motivating factors in my life, and I suspect just about everybody's life. I think love and fear, and there's often a connection. A lot of times our fear is based on losing love. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just a huge motivating factor. And, and to be honest, we as English speakers, we ask love, that word, to carry a lot of water, Right? I love my wife, I love my son, I love Josh Price, I love you guys, you know, uh, I love apple pie, right? Like, we ask that word love to carry a lot, and, and Greek famously has four different words for love, there's some overlap, and I think maybe a little bit much has been made of that, but, but it, it, other languages often have more than one word to kind of deal with everything that we lump under love, but Here's the thing, love is such a huge concept to us. It's such a motivating factor. It's such a thing that drives us, I think, even in ways that we don't really understand. When we apply that to relationship, not pie, although it could be argued that I do have a relationship with pie and it's not healthy. But when we apply it to human relationships, when we talk about love in in all of those different ways, we're talking about some sort of connection, right? We're talking about something that we want or, or even really need, we are looking for, when we talk about love in, in friendship or in relationship, we're talking about, well, love's supposed to make us feel safe, right? The thing that we're missing, right? We think that some kind of love will fill that up, whether that's friendship or companionship or family stuff. Like it, we, we want to, that love, that relationship, that connection to somehow fill us up. And love should make us feel, we think, complete and, and incompetent, right? When someone believes in you, right? 
that, that matters and who it is matters. Like when my mom said, you're special, I believed it, probably too long, yeah? Like when they tell you these things, that, that, that if, when someone, who, depending on who it is, they tell you something, it's just, it, it matters and it makes you feel when you have that connection and that love and that affection, it matters. One of the things about love that's so important about it is it makes us feel like we matter that we have significance, that we have weight. And without love, that's why loneliness is one of the most dangerous things. It's one of the most painful things. The absence of love is painful. So we need, we look for, we all pursue it. We all end up looking for it sometime in our life in the wrong places, right? The theologian Johnny Lee said, uh, looking for love in all the wrong places looking for love in all the wrong faces. Searching their eyes, trying to find what I'm dreaming of. Yeah, like we look for it. We pursue it. We can't help. It's part of being human to look for that thing that somehow will fill us up, complete us, make us have value, make us feel like we have worth, that we matter. The biblical notion of love adds to that. It doesn't diminish that, but it adds to it. And biblical love, the idea of biblical love, we talked about this before already, uh, is sacrificial. Right? The image of biblical love is that it costs something. It's one person laying down uh, for another to, what they could have for themselves to see the other person flourish. That's the biblical notion of love. And anything that falls short of that, by the way, will still leave you feeling incomplete. So when we look for love in the wrong places, on the wrong faces, in career or even family, in good things, not necessarily bad things, but we look for the love that God is supposed to supply, supplies for us in other places, it, if it's not sacrificial love, it's not going to fix anything. That's why we have to keep finding the next one, right? The next career achievement, the next relationship, the next thing that will make us feel whole, because Love that doesn't sacrifice falls short of the biblical notion, the biblical idea of love. And so we go to this to understand what love is. And so that's the reason I say that this is the starting place. Uh, how would you define God, right? How would you talk about God? Uh, people have talked about God in, in, in so many different ways. There's so many different things that you could say about what God is like, about his nature and his character. He is transcendent, right? Holy other, not like us. He is spirit and does not have a body like we do. He is righteous. He is powerful. He is beautiful. He is... He also pours out... He also just, he also pours out wrath and vengeance. And where we start in understanding God in this portrait of who he is, it, it, it matters. The greatest revelation, John says, of who Jesus, of who God is and what he's like is Jesus. He says, this is how we know. It is, in this, the love of God was made manifest. Here's how we saw it. Here's how we knew that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this love, he became the propitiation for our sins, loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to stand in our place. He says, when you saw Jesus and you saw him die on the cross, you saw what God was like. If you wanted to know what God is like, this is it. What God is like, the clearest picture of what God is like is Jesus Christ coming to the world, dying instead of you and me. That's it. That's how you see God. That's how you understand God most perfectly. And, and he, this is who God is. And he doesn't say God, God is loving. He doesn't say God is uh, a feeling. He says God is love. He is the definition. He is the defining thing. Uh, he is, it's his very, very, nat- his very, very nature. That God is love. It's the thing that we're constantly looking for. The thing that you long for, the thing that makes you feel complete is this love that, that is God himself. And this needs to be our starting place for understanding. And I think John rightly, obviously, I'm, not, I'm going to disagree with John. Uh, John, we see this text that God is love, and this is so helpful in our starting place of understanding what he is like. And here's why. If you grew up in the kind of an authoritarian setting, uh, lots of rules, lots of punishment, that kind of stuff, uh, a very strict setting, uh, sometimes what can happen is that when you come to the text and come to the Bible, the parts that jump off the page are the parts about all of the rules and the discipline. And here's the deal. If you start with your understanding of God, my fundamental understanding of God is that he's a bunch of, there's a bunch of rules, there's a bunch of things that I need to do, then I look at his love and go, yeah, I know he's loving if I do these things. Right? Now, whether or not you would say that, whether you want to answer that on a test, we sometimes live out of that place and understand it that place in our heart. That if God loves me when I am good, if I start with God is just and he has these things that I'm supposed to do, if that is my beginning place, it becomes difficult to understand his love. If I start with or grow into, arrive at a place later in my life where I go, well, God is merciful and God is grace, which is true. It's true. He is just. He's also grace and mercy. If I, but I start here and I go, God is grace and God is mercy. Sometimes what can happen is I can begin to dismiss and go, you know what? I don't really have to do anything. I just sit here and wait. If that's my starting place and I try to understand everything else from this lens, I see these two things as opposed. But if I start with God as love, then these other two things begin to make sense and I don't begin to see them as different things. I begin to see them as one thing. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and all these things in the Old Testament, all these, these rules and, and, and some stories that are unsettling, <laughs> to be honest with you, don't sit well with me about what God did, uh, uh, wiping out nations and things like that. That just seems, it doesn't sit well with me. And so, but if I sit here and I begin with God is love, it begins to make sense of these things over here. And here's what I mean. As you read the story and you see what God is doing and you begin to understand, you start with God as love, you look over here at his discipline and you say, I don't understand, here, this, how, do I, how do I make sense of this? And you read the stories and you read all the things and what you begin to see is that God's rules and God's discipline are absolutely a function of his love. If you had parents or are a parent, you know this. Uh, we often make rules because we love someone. And not only that, we hate things that will harm the thing that we love. Or have parents that would protect us and guard us. One day, Gibson was very, very little, and I was walking him, no, driving him up to the little school that he went, preschool he went to. 
Uh, and actually, we were driving home, and he said, I said to him, hey, G, how was so-and-so? So, so. He said, good. He was fine. He said, did you, did you play with so-and-so today, this little friend that he would mention? He goes, no. I go, oh, really, why not? Was he not there? He goes, no. He said, we're not friends anymore. I pulled the car over immediately, and I leaned, turned around, looked at him. I said, do you know where his dad lives? I, I was prepared to do violence because someone had hurt my beloved, right? The, the one that I love, someone hurt them, and I immediately became defensive. I came to my senses and drove home. Uh, but, but I immediately wanted to protect. You want to protect the one that you love. And when you start from the place that God is love, and you look at the rules and the things that he's guarding us against, you begin to understand his rules and his guardrails as not things that are just there to test us, but things that protect us because he loves us that guard us. And this discipline, when people reject God's love, when people refuse to receive his love, when people refuse to receive his lordship and insist on doing their own thing, going their own way, living in their own sin, it begins to do harm to the beloved and at some point God will step in and bring judgment. Why? Because it's harming his beloved. When I start with love, his justice and his rules begin to make sense. It's not that I have to do these things to earn them. It's that he has given me guidelines to help me understand how to live a life that is very confusing. And also, almost completely contrary to my instincts. I, I wish that I had grown up but I feel like still most days I'm, I'm like a kid who just only wants cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Just give me the thing that I want. If you love me, you'd give me cake. I don't understand why you don't give me cake. Give me pie. And a parent steps in and goes, no, because I love you, I'm absolutely not going to give you pie for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You must eat your vegetables. And I feel like I'm being tortured. Are you kidding me? Why do you hate me? I don't hate you. You need this. I'm giving, I love you. I'm giving you rules. I'm giving you guardrails. I want to protect you from the things that will harm you so that you will grow and mature. And the same is true of our Heavenly Father. We start from here, we begin to see his mercy and his grace poured out and his justice are not in conflict, but amazingly in Christ, they meet. We understand who God is. We also understand how to read scripture. I I think that also one of the great tragedies of the thing that I became to believe, and I know for a fact that I'm not the only one who grew up this way, I began to believe, even if it was not said directly, that the God of the Old Testament was somehow different than the God of the New. You know what I mean? Like The God of the New Testament was nice and loving because of Jesus and all, I guess. I don't know. We don't really need to look too deeply into the God of the Old Testament because, you know, there's lots of smiting. And it makes me uncomfortable. So I begin to believe somehow that these are two different gods, which is tragic. It's tragic because does God change? Will he change again? But he's not. He's always the same. Immutable is the fancy word if you're collecting fancy words. Immutable does not change. Oh, and I begin to believe scripture that you, there are people that sometimes that would say, well, yeah, you know what? They didn't really understand. So just kind of ignore those parts of the Bible. Those people just, they were interpreting situations and applying things to God that aren't true, which is also a tragic way to understand scripture because now I can't trust it. <laughs> a better way to understand it is by a plot starting from the place that God is love. 
In the Old Testament God does not differ from the New Testament God. As a matter of fact, uh, they're very, very the same. Uh, as a matter of fact, when God describes himself as early as Exodus, right? Exodus 34, verse 6, God describes himself this way. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who he is. This is what he describes himself as. This is who I am. I am a God of loyal love. Later in this same story, They've arrived at the promised land. God has led his people out of Egypt and he's taken them to the promised land. It's been 40 plus years. And they're about to go in. They send, oh no, this is not, sorry, not 40 years. But they go to, this is the first time they go, so it's not that long. Anyway, they go into the land. Spies go into the land. They come back and they give this report. They're like, yeah, uh, there's no way we're going to win this battle. There's just no way at all. There are giants living in the land. Like, it's unreal. There's no way that we would ever, ever be able to take that land. And so, God gets really upset. And, and he says this, roll numbers. He says this in, in, in numbers, the story to, to Moses. He says, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? Uh, and how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I'll strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I'll make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And if you kill this people as one man, the nations whom you've heard of your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, Please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word. God forgives them. Moses goes before God who says, listen, you know what? They've, I did all of these things and they keep rejecting me. And Moses goes before him and says, whoa, before you do this, before you wipe them out, just like they're going to hear about your reputation in Egypt and they're going to say false things about you. And also, by the way, you are a God of steadfast love. And he appeals to God's very nature. He appeals to God to stay committed to a people that will never, ever be committed to you. And God says, yep, that's who I am. You're right. You have seen rightly. I am a God who remains committed, loyally loving a people who refuse to loyally love me. This is the God of the Old Testament. It is the God that we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ who comes and dies and shows us what love is like and dies that we might know that kind of love, a kind of love that loves us when we refuse to love him, a kind of love that stays committed when we refuse to stay committed to him. This is what God's love is like. 
And when we start there with this understanding of who God is, it begins to make sense of who he is and what he is like. It begins to make some kind of ordering sense of how to, how to read scripture, that we don't dismiss parts of it, that even the parts that make us feel uncomfortable, somehow, even in being uncomfortable with him, we believe that somehow God is working things towards protecting and loving his beloved. That's important. It is a starting place to understand sin and violence. Not only that, the Bible does this amazing thing where uh, uh, a Puritan author, uh, Puritans, by the way, if you don't know what a Puritans are, not known for being touchy-feely. Uh, kind of a hard-edged group of people. Uh, but the Puritans, uh, a great Puritan wrote this amazing passage. Uh, he said that when the Bible speaks of punishing like he does in Lamentations 3.33, says that God does not afflict willingly, nor does he grieve the children of men. But when it's, he, doesn't, he doesn't punish willingly, he doesn't desire to do it. But when it speaks of doing good, when it speaks of mercy, like it does in Jeremiah 32.41, he says, it's with his whole heart and his whole soul that he looks to do good. Isaiah 28, refers to what God does when he comes, his acts of justice, as a strange work. It's his strange work when he has to punish, when he has to bring justice. But it is with his whole being that he pours out good and he pours out mercy. This is what God is like. Uh Amazing. So here's how this makes sense of life and living then. If we start from a place that this is who God is and what God is like, it, it matters, it matters. And here, here's why it matters. So often what happens in life is, is circumstances, things happen to us and, and, and they begin to rock us. I, I can't count the number of people who've had a pretty decent life and something terrible and tragic happens to them and they begin to question how in the world could a loving God let this thing happen? I've been there. It's awful. I believe it. How could a loving God let let this kind of tragedy happen? Let these people kind of do this kind of harm? How could could God do this thing over here? And And I get it. I've been there. But if we start from the place that he's loving... And we begin to interpret these situations, these things that happen and go, we can now put them in their proper place and say, I do not understand from where I sit now. How can this be good? But I believe with all my heart, God will somehow use this for my eternal good. If we start from God is love, things can happen to us and we be, instead of moving to where we begin to question God, hey, I thought God was powerful and he could handle this. I thought, if he, I thought he would do this for me. I thought he would fix these things in my life. And we begin to think that God, God owes us or, or, or that it, we were good so we've deserved this. And we begin there instead of knowing that God is love, these bad things happen to us and it rocks our understanding of his love. But if we start with God is himself love, when bad things happen to us, we can put them in a proper place in our heart and in our thinking and say, you know what? I don't understand why these bad things are happening. I hate these bad things. I lament these bad things. I pray these bad things go away. This loss, this hurt, I do not want it. But you know what? I do believe that somehow in God's infinite wisdom, because of what I've seen in Jesus on the cross, that he can take the most tragic of all things that have ever happened and make it the greatest glory that's ever been. That's how powerful God is. And it comes from him being a God who is in himself 
love. He can act no other way. That he will protect us and keep us even up to, and the resurrection proved this, even up to and through death itself, God is working out his love. That's how we make sense of this world. The beauty and the good and the tragedy and the sad, somehow God is using all of these things. And when you begin to read the Bible that way, when you begin to believe this is who God is, and you read all of the amazing stories in the Old Testament, all of a sudden that jumps out. Oh my goodness, these are all stories of how God took terrible, awful things and made good from them. I remember I got a call, a text one day from a guy who said, I'm going to read the Bible. I was like, great, do it. Just start in Genesis and go. He's like, I'm going to do it. I've never done it before. I'm going to do it. I was like, great, do it. It was uh, about a month later, I got a text from him. He goes, uh, I have a question. This Jacob guy. Yeah. He seems like a terrible person. Is that, is that right? I'm, yeah, no, that's exactly. Like, well done. Like, you just, yeah, he's a terrible human being. Yeah, right. Not, w- buckle your seatbelt. It gets worse. Like, it's a bunch of terrible human beings. And, and like, you read this, and you're like, ah, how, what am I supposed to do with this? And the answer is, you read this, and God is so powerful. He is so powerful, and that he can take even the most broken human beings and work his work his will through them. You look at the story of Joseph, this amazing story, you get to the end, Joseph says this critical thing, this criti- I say it all the time because it's so important that we get this. Joseph says this is a very critical thing to understanding life. His brothers are standing before him, they're terrified that he's gonna kill them because they've abandoned him, they sold him, he's been spent most of his life away from his family, he's been through these terrible, terrible things, but God has elevated him to this position of power and authority, he could speak one word and have them killed, and they say to him, basically, do not kill us, and Joseph says, oh, you've misunderstood what you intended for, for evil, God intended for good. That's how powerful God is, he can take evil intent and one one day work it for good. So many of the Old Testament stories just play that out, bear that out. God is working through awful, terrible, tragic circumstances to bring people to him, to draw people to him, all because of this, because of his great love. Because of his great love, we must start there to understand life. And then how do we live? Here's how we live. We love. That's what he says, Christians. If you have experienced this kind of love, then it makes sense for you to love one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you know this love, if you have been born of this love, if God abides in you and you abide in God, if you've been born in this love, then what do we do? We love. I hate golf. I just want to just let you know that. I hate it so much, and here's why I hate it. Like, I get it that I can't hit a fastball, right? I mean, you're in a stadium, people screaming at you, right? 90, somebody's throwing a ball at you 98 miles an hour. I get it why you can't do it. Football, I get it. I get it why it's hard. It's impossible. Some huge person is running at you at a speed that humans shouldn't be allowed to move at and going to hit you and knock your head off. I get why, I, like, I get it. But in golf... The stupid ball's just sitting still. It seems like such a simple thing. Just hit that ball. And you're like, well, are people going to be yelling at me? No, we make everybody be quiet. It seems so simple, but it's so hard. I think a lot of the Christian life is that way. It's so simple, but it turns out to be incredibly difficult. It's simple this way. You live a life of love, loving other people based on the love that you've experienced. That's so simple. 
turns out to be kind of difficult sometimes, right? Because you leave here and you're like, yes, he's exactly right. I, God loved me. I've experienced God's love. I know that. I'm going to go out love. And you go out here and you go out into the world and you meet someone and they're awful to you and they're mean to you. And you're like, what? I, I, what do I? Hey, what? I don't, I don't want to love this person. No, love them anyway. But I don't want to. They were mean to me. They hurt me. They wounded me deeply. Yes, love them anyway. We go out in the world and we love those who are unlovable. We want other people to experience what we've experienced. Being loyally committed to someone even if they are not loyally committed to you. We go out and we love that way. We love that way. There's a war going on for your love and for your attention. I think we're just, uh, be careful. Um, I think we value, just be careful not to value too much what you, um, your estimation of what you need. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we arrive at a place and, and we're, we're looking for love in, in the wrong faces, right? Or career or this thing or that thing or whatever it is, wherever we're looking for it. And just be really careful not to lift your own idea of what you need too high. My experience has been that we're all children and we don't really know what's good for us. We just, just, just don't know. Be very careful as things are warring for your attention and for your affections. Be careful where you're looking. It's pretty easy to figure out what you love. You can tell what someone loves by what she devotes herself to most passionately. What is the thing that you devote yourself to most passionately? How about this? When you're alone and you're quiet and you have moments of stillness, what is the thing that jumps in your head? What are the thoughts you can't get rid of? The things that we devote our thinking and our attention to are the kind of reveal to us what we love. What we value most. It will be reflected not just in our actions, but in our motivation for those actions. Simple but difficult, right? If you find yourself in a place where you're like, I just, I'm not happy. Like, I feel like I should be. I look around and I get, I run the math. I have people, I have stuff, I have all the things. Why am I not happy? My, why do I not feel fulfilled? My encouragement to you would be to look at what you give your attention and your affection to and ask why it isn't Jesus. Everything will fall short and leave you wanting except for this kind of sacrificial love. This is what you're looking for. God himself in relationship. That's what you're looking for. Give your attention and your thinking to that. Shape your habits that way. And then we have this amazing gift. This is an amazing gift. He actually says in here, uh, there, there's people that disagree, but they're allowed to be wrong. Uh, I believe that this text says that we get to participate in making God known in how we love one another. He says that God's love is perfected. He says, you can't see God. Nobody can see God, but he can see us love one another. In how you and I, people at Birmingham Community Church, and and people not, how we love one another, people actually get to experience God, what he's like, see what he's like. He says, Jesus is ascended back into heaven. 
We saw it in him, and now we get to love that way, and we get to participate in that. When we love, even when it's not deserved, unbelievable. What are we sacrificing? What does it cost? Here's why it's so hard. Because loving someone doesn't mean giving them whatever they want. Loving, look, I'm really good probably by nature at speaking truth, right? Uh, I'll, you know, I'll be glad to let you know what I think. Yeah. No one's ever looked at me and been like, I wonder if Chris has strong opinions about this. They know. I, I'll speak truth. Uh, I don't do a great job of speaking. It takes a lot more work to be loving and gentle in my speaking truth. Some people can be gentle and love you and care for you and make you feel special, but struggle to speak truth. Struggle to look at someone and say, look, that's not really good for you. Like, I, I love you and that's not it. And, and the truth is, according to scripture and, and experience, uh, not everyone is going to love how we love them. Because we want what we want. And when you come to me and say, that's not good for you, I'm going to throw a tiny little tantrum. Every time. We speak truth to one another, and when we wound one another, we forgive and we love. Speaking truth in love to each other, this is the thing that we get to practice. This is the thing that we get to do in community with one another. As we give our lives, setting aside what we could have for ourselves, and seeing the flourishing of others around us, it seems like such this daunting task. Like, why would anybody want this? But again, remember, you're probably really bad at knowing what's good for you, what you really want, how to get to what you really want. The Bible says the way to see flourishing is to lay down your life for others. Believe it or not, even though it's hard, man, you see so much growth. You see so much love. You see so much hope. And the world gets to see his love completed in us. How beautiful. Let's pray. Father, your love is amazing. It's overwhelming to think about your son, the propitiation, the the payment, the standing in our place. And then to think that we get to continue this type of love in community with believers. What a responsibility, what a gift, what a mission. Reveal in our hearts what we love. Reveal what we give our attention to. Show us that the starting place for understanding not just you and the world, but how we're supposed to live in it is love. We encounter your strange works. When we we face tragedy, may we see it as, and struggle, when we see it as your love. Working in these things, May we believe and have faith. When we, <laughs> when we do what we not, shouldn't do, may we begin with your love. Your mercies are new every day. When people wound us and hurt us, may we begin with love, knowing that because you hold us secure, because you love us, that we matter, no matter how deeply wounded we are by others, and then we can love even those who wound us. And in this, oh, in this place, may just may people be comforted, may people grow, may people increase in love, and may the world see what you were like. 
committed to us even when we refuse to be committed to you. And may we be committed to one another even as we fail to be committed to each other. Man, what a beautiful thing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.